Hey, welcome to the Compass Church. I mean that genuinely to all of you. Every single person here at Hobson, every single one of you at the 95th Street campus, you made a decision to worship with us, and I want you to know we are honored by that. I don't know if you feel like, uh, I don't matter. Well, you do matter. You matter tons to our church, and the fact that you're a part of us brings me great joy, and I pray, I've been praying, that you will be richly blessed by our time together. We're in a series called Trials, where we're studying the five biblical times that Christians appeared on trial before that ancient tribunal called the Sanhedrin. And as we transition into our next trial, I wanted to tell you about something that happened a few years back at a homecoming at Wheaton College. I'm a Wheaton College alum. My folks are actually Wheaton College alum as well, and they were there with me. We were all together. We went to this chapel service at uh, Wheaton's campus, and in the lobby of the chapel, I, I saw something that just warmed my heart. I have a picture of this statue. Uh, it's a statue of a guy by the name of V. Raymond Edmond. And when I saw it, I'm like, oh, I remember. Can you guys tell his nose is very shiny? Uh, we Wheaton students had a tradition of passing by and rubbing his nose as we went and really made his bronze nose shine like Rudolph there. And I just had a fond memory of rubbing his nose coming by. Right then, my, my mother said, why is his nose like that? And, and I explained to her, I said, well, Mom, there is a tradition of Whedon students who rub his nose. And my mom says, who would show disrespect like that? You know, and I'm, oh, it's evil people in this world, Mom. I don't know, you know, just some rotten folks. And I noticed in that moment that my, my mom's sentimental reverence for this guy was far more than my own. To me, you know, he's just some president of Wheaton from way back. To my mom and dad, he was the president of the school in their day, someone that they deeply respected. In fact, my mom and dad started sharing with me about this great guy, really amazing guy. He was he was a, uh, a veteran in World War I, then a missionary in Ecuador, then a pastor of a small church, then a professor at Wheaton College, and then president of the institution for 25 years. He faithfully led and served the people of Wheaton. They actually named the, the chapel after him. It's called the Edmund Chapel. I think we have a picture of the inside of it. Uh, many times a week, all 2,000 more students of Wheaton College pack in to this chapel named after him. Built in his lifetime, in fact, uh, Edmund preached his last sermon at this pulpit. We have a picture of him preaching that very last sermon. My mom and dad told me about this message it was on September the 22nd, 1967. The message was entitled, Entering the Presence of the King. He was uh, describing a situation where he had the opportunity to visit the king of Ethiopia. And he used his experience of going into the presence of that king to describe how we go into the presence of the king of kings when we worship him. 
And check this out. On that day, the picture is taken of that day. Edmund was preaching about entering the presence of the king. And as he did, he had a massive heart attack, died in the pulpit of the chapel named after him, and he quite literally entered the presence of the king right here on on that day. Isn't that incredible? And I hear that, and I'm like, whoa, I'm not rubbing his nose anymore. He is a hero of mine. And quite honestly, that's how I want to go. <laughs> Maybe tonight. Uh, I hope not. But uh, Boy, when you think of all the ways you could die to proclaim the glory of God and the honor of being in his presence, in his favorite place, with his favorite people, describing his favorite God, and boom, right there and then, in, an, in a heartbeat, he passed into eternity. Unbelievable. How will you go? How will you die? Will it be glorious? You know, as we are talking here about trials, you know, we've been describing trials that, you know, maybe you can say, oh, I don't think I can relate to that. For some, it's been a trial of physical sickness, or it's been a trial of career failure, or trials of parenting challenges. And, you know, it's interesting. Some relate to various trials, but we're going to talk about one tonight that every single one of us will have to endure, and that is the trial of death. He's like, really? You're going to preach a sermon on how to die? Yes, we are, because it's coming. For all of us. And we don't know when. That's the crazy thing about this death thing. It may be decades away for us. We may be blessed with more decades to live. It may be this year. And being old or young still doesn't clarify exactly when it is. People are taken in their youth. I've done enough funerals of young people to be reminded that death could be around the corner for any one of us, and we must be ready. It's the trial of all trials, arguably. You know, if the Lord does not return to take us home before that time, every one of us is going to approach this ordeal called death. And maybe the the greater challenge is not the death, but the dying, the approach of that glorious transition. It's hard. It's scary. And the Bible speaks to how it can be done well. And we're going to learn at the trial of Stephen. Stephen went on trial before the Sanhedrin. If you can remember, there have been these threats. You better stop talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. And so far, the, the disciples of Christ have been freed from that threat and not been executed, well, their good luck comes to an end. And Stephen is killed as a ruling of the Sanhedrin. And man, does that man die well. You know, kind of like Edmund. He preached, and as he finished his sermon, his life was brought to an end in glorious fashion. So let's Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, can I encourage you to grab one? You'll find it in the Bible in your seat back on page 1096. 
1,096. I'm going to start with chapter 6 and read verse 15, but then we're going to switch to chapter 7. But let me read this verse because it's really interesting. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Can you imagine the members of the Sanhedrin looking intently at this guy whom they've arrested for talking about Jesus, who is on trial with the threat of execution in front of him, all this pressure, all this danger, and yet they're peering intently into his eyes, and they're like, man, I'll never forget that Stephen guy. His face looked like that of an angel. What what do you think that means? Maybe it was just the peace or the joy, or the resolve, or the strength. But there was glory. There was something supernatural. They noticed and would never forget that that guy, that Stephen, on his last moments on planet Earth, had this glow about him that most people just don't have. You want that? I want that. Well, with that said, I will tell you, Stephen on trial testifies. And, you know, he doesn't testify. He preaches. You can read the entirety of his sermon. His sermon, it's a doozy. One of the longest sermons found in all of scripture, 53 verses. Stephen's sermon proclaims the faithfulness of God and the goodness of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 7, verse 55, so flip to Uh, Chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen uh, is really in trouble. They are so mad at him. the, The Sanhedrin is raging at this sermon he has preached. But look what it says. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, See heaven open, or I see heaven open, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, they can't stand it. Uh, this, this sophisticated court turns into violent mob chaos. It says in verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him out. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. The ancient form of execution that was quite common was to literally pick up stones and pummel a guy until his body was so broken, torn, and bruised and bleeding that he would die. And that's what they did. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, you may be aware that that Saul is going to become Paul. He'll change his name later when he becomes a Christian. The great apostle who wrote so much of our New Testament and brought the good news of Jesus Christ into the Western world and started churches and revolutionized the cause, he started out against it all. In fact, he was there participating in the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, 
Receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That falling asleep is a reference to his death. Boy, that's dying well. I mean, just check this out. Look at the peace that he has as he's being pummeled with stones, as life is being drained from his veins. He is able to pray with serenity, Lord Jesus, take my spirit. I'm ready to go. That is a peace at the moment of death that is absolutely remarkable. And not only peace, the selflessness that he has. In this moment, he is not thinking about himself. It says here that he cried out for the forgiveness of those who were doing this to him. In his final breath, in his last fleeting moment, he wasn't thinking about himself at all but thinking about others and praying for God's grace to reach those around him. St. Augustine once said that if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. You know, Paul, one of the persecutors there at the moment, was an answer to prayer, to Stephen's last prayer on planet Earth. He was not only a recipient of God's grace, but transformed in that forgiveness to being the great advocate. So often, in the moment of death, there is a tendency to be self-consumed. And yet in the very last moment, Stephen is selfless to the last, praying, crying out for God's grace to win the day, even in those people he's with who are killing him. Man! Folks, When it comes to my end, you know, when I face that inevitable battle called death, I want to do it heroically like that. I want to face it with supernatural expression. And you do too. None of us want to collapse in some puddle of self-pity and We want to be strong in Christ in that moment. And it begs the question, how do we do it? Well, I want to use Stephen's example for us as a pathway to show keys as to how we can do what he did. And I want to return and meditate, if you will, go through verse 55. We've already read it, but let's put it up here again. Kind of go through phrase by phrase and find five keys five keys to how a Christian can die well. Are you ready? You know, maybe I should pause here. How a Christian can die well. If you're not a Christian, there's no way to die well. Death is awful, unthinkable for one apart from Christ. And so I'll say the obvious. The first thing is you must become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're not ready to die. Let's just say it like that, all right? But when you find Christ and the forgiveness that he offers those who cry out to him and the new life that he brings in him, then, like Stephen, you're ready to die and to die well. And so for Christians, this is an example we can follow. 
There are five keys, and the first is in this first phrase. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, all right? We've seen this repeatedly in the trials. Every time these Christians go through trials, this phrase is there, that they were full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to use uh, this phrase to remind us of this point. We must lean on his spirit if we're going to face death heroically, victoriously. Death is a formidable foe. Can we just say it? Death is hard. When the body starts to break down and shut down, that is a trial that is absolutely awful. There is an unknown to that transition that can make it terrifying. And if you think, oh, I'll face it on my own, if you have a cocky, self-confident attitude, you go without the Spirit's assistance. And God never intended it that way. One of the keys to dying well is to do so with humility and reliance on the Spirit of God, to lean on his Holy Spirit and say, I must be filled with the Spirit if I'm going to die well. Lord, it's in the next decade, maybe, or the next two decades, or three. Whatever it is, though, God, I will not approach it in my own strength. As I draw near to the finish line of this earthly journey, Man, I'm going to be clinging to you, God. In all humility, I will acknowledge I need your spirit if I'm going to do this well. So that's the first key, is humbly lean on his spirit. The second is this. He looked up to heaven. Where was the focus of Stephen as he approached this violent end? Was he staring in the eyes of his accusers? Was he seeing their stones and saying, oh no, that's going to be painful? No, his focus was on heaven. I phrase it this way, focus on his Lord's future for you. For those who are in Christ, we are promised a transition from this life into heaven. The, the, The Bible says that to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so this moment of death for us marks this dramatic transition into paradise. And the key to dying well is to be looking at heaven and to be focusing not on the moment of death as much as what's beyond that death. You know, the temptation as we approach death, is to become preoccupied with the dying and to be so consumed with what will it be like, you know, when my heart stops and what will it feel like to take my last breath and to realize that it's all coming to an end. And when we become preoccupied with the dying and don't focus on what's beyond it, we miss the point. We are short-sighted in that moment. My daughter, Janae, a middle child, she is terrified of flying airplanes. Loves to go on vacation, just can't stand the flight to get there. And uh, the week before a vacation, she'll be, I can see her starting to obsess. How long is this flight again, Dad? How many minutes exactly, you know? And, I, and I'm like, Janae, you're thinking about the wrong thing. The flight, you know, is an hour and a half. Think Florida, think beaches, think the joy of 
what we're going to experience there. Push your mind to not obsess about this short little part that you can't stand. But focus your mind on the big thing, and that's where you end up. And that's the challenge of dying, to say, yes, Lord, the, 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 the collapse of the physical body is awful. But I'm going to keep my eye on what's beyond. I'm going to keep my focus on where it is I'm going. And as a child anticipates vacation in paradise, so I want there to be that trembling excitement as I draw near the end. Because I know I'm about to experience joy like I've never known it before. Because of the future, Christ has won me through his death on the cross for my sins. Do you see that? And so focus not on the dying. Focus on beyond the future the Lord has for us. So let's move on. What's the next phrase? He saw the glory of God. Isn't this awesome? In this moment of his death, God blesses him with a vision of God, probably beyond anything he's ever seen before. As he's looking up into heaven, He sees, he's given by God this glorious vision. The glory of God is one of my favorite concepts. I know the word glory sounds so religious and can be meaningless as a result of that. But once you get it, you'll fall in love with it. Because glory is the beauty of who God is on display. The greatest joy in all the universe is taking in the beauty of God. The, the, the thing that fills the heart the most is learning, seeing, and basking in how beautiful God is. Like, you know, looking at a sunset that just is precious, so the glory of God brings joy to the soul. And in this moment of agonizing pain, Stephen is rejoicing in what? that he sees the glory of God. You know, so many people think that, uh, that the joy in life is in pleasant circumstances. Well, if that's so, there's no joy in death, right? Because death is miserable circumstances. Circumstantially, death is the collapse of life. You're Physical abilities are diminished. Your capacity to enjoy travel is eliminated often. And, you know, your physical surroundings are often reduced down to a hospital room. And you say, what joy is there in this? Again, the joy of life is not in the perfection of circumstances, but the perfection of God. It's in knowing the Lord and discovering new facets of his love for us and his beautiful character, his glory, that brings joy to the heart. And so long as you have any capacity to think, you can contemplate the glory of God. My uncle died 25 years ago. He was a pastor, died, I think, about my age. Uh, Cancer gripped his body, and for 10 years, he battled cancer as his 
Life was stripped away from him. And when he died, it was right at the time I was being called into ministry. And he came to me and he said, Jeff, I want you to have my library. What an incredible gift. I still read his books weekly to this day. And when I read them, I am connected with my uncle again as I look at the notes in the margin of his books and the underlining and the exclamation points. And I see his enthusiasm to discover new facets of God's glory. Now these notes were taken in a time when his life was ebbing away. Physically, he was being robbed of circumstances that were pleasurable. But to the end, he couldn't get enough discovery of God's glory. And so when you're old or young and falling apart and you know, I have few days left and they're going to be painful days, what good is there? God is good. And his glory can be seen and enjoyed, and his love can be received and basked in. And even when all else is bad, the best thing, the glory of God, is still available for the taking. And I pray that we will be learners and readers of God's word and pursuers of his face. You know, one of the, one of the values of our church is to pursue him daily. May that be true till our last day. Amen? Amen. Amen. He saw the glory of God, and so can we. Here's an interesting phrase. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's many uh, references in the Bible to Christ being sitting at the right hand of God. In fact, the New Testament is filled with references. We read one of them earlier at Jesus' trial. He said, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And yet here, he's not sitting at all. He's standing. Is there meaning to that? I think so. Uh, When Stephen sees him, he sees that Christ, who has been sitting, has risen to his feet. And the scholars have speculated as to the significance of that decision of Christ to stand up. And there is uh, widespread agreement that that is anticipating the welcome. That Jesus is, in a sense, saying, oh my, the first Christian martyr, here he comes. My boy, Stephen, and in honor and in anticipation and in excitement, Jesus rises to welcome Stephen to his eternal home. Isn't that incredible? I see Jesus. He's standing for me. Folks, the greatest thing of heaven, you know, the kids love to speculate, is there like unlimited ice cream in heaven? Of course there is, but that's not what makes heaven great. Will I be able to fly? I think so, but still that's not what's best. The best thing about heaven is the face-to-face encounter with the Lord. We enjoy God now in part. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. It talks about how, yeah, we experience God, but our, our vision of him is marred. It's twisted. It's blurry. 
Then we will see him face to face, is the phrase. Now we know him in part. Then we will know him fully as we are fully known, the passage says. That moment of rushing into the arms of our Lord and embracing him relationally fully is the greatest joy of heaven. And as we approach that moment of death, the great drama is that we break through on the other side to experience the honor of all honors. And that is face-to-face encounter with the Lord. You know, I was watching a baseball game when I saw imagery that I thought really made this come home. Uh, There was a, a little girl who had the privilege of throwing out the first pitch. You know, it's part of a ceremony in Major League Baseball. She was being honored because of the sacrifice of her and her whole family in giving up dad. Dad had been serving as a lieutenant colonel in the army in Afghanistan for over a year he had been gone. And they wanted to honor the little girl for that. Take a, I got it on video here, so let's watch together. What the little girl doesn't know is that that masked catcher is her dad. She can't tell because he's got all the equipment on, but he picks up the ball here, and she's about to discover. Oh, look at that joy. Folks, that's heaven right there. That's the moment we won't be able to get enough of. You know, when I watched that video, I moved by the little girl's enthusiasm, but as much by the dad's enthusiasm. He can't wait. You see it all over his face. He's like, give me my little girl. I have been apart from her for too long. And God is thrilled to be with us. He enjoys being with us today. But as we long for that face-to-face greeting, that homecoming, so does he. And that longing is seen in Christ rising to his feet in anticipation of Stephen's arrival. Do you view it that way? Because that's true. As you count down the minutes to your last moment, the face of God is glowing with anticipation and excitement to be with you finally. The culmination of what he came to do at the cross of Calvary is finally reaching that climax as we embrace him. Well, uh, let's move on. Uh, Moving on. So anticipate his welcome. And then lastly, standing at the right hand of God, this, this position of the right hand of the Father. I mentioned this before when we were looking at the trial of Jesus Christ, but I'll point to it again. That's a position of authority. God the Father sits on the throne, and in the ancient world, that seat next to the king was one of extreme control and authority. And that's who Jesus is. He's the one who sits on the throne, all right, or stands when you arrive. But this reminder of the authority of Jesus Christ is so important to Stephen at this moment. Because at this dark moment, it could seem like, where's the Lord? Here I am being pummeled with stones. Here I am being abused in his name. Where is he? Where is he? Is he powerless? 
was. As Stephen sees him at his throne, he is reminded, no, he is not powerless. He reigns supreme as king of kings, and he is in his sovereignty, allowing this to be my moment of transition. And Stephen was reminded, though it could be tempting to think that God is powerless, he is not. Even now, he reigns as the sovereign king in my life. Rest in his sovereignty as we approach. You know, the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 5, says, God has decided the length of our lives. Did you know that? God chose to number your days. It goes on. It says, he knows how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. God is the one who determines when our transition is. We don't know, but we can trust him. He's on the throne. He's in control. And as we approach the end, you know, we'll just say, hey, I don't know what day it's going to be or what Monday it is, but he does. And I trust my father and I will find peace in resting in his sovereign decision when it's time. Cancer doesn't determine when I go home. The Lord determines when I go home. Amen. You know, last uh, weekend after uh, church, uh, my family and I piled into the minivan right away and we started rushing north to, uh, to Wisconsin, Lake Geneva area, because we were going to visit my grandmother. Last Sunday was her 98th birthday. Can you believe that? All of the extended family got together. I have a picture of the last Sunday with us all gathered here. And here is Iola Sorensen at 98 years old with her crazy descendants. And uh, I was talking with my grandma again, and I'm like, 98 years old. I call her Nana. Can you believe that? And I said to her, Nana, two more years and you're going to be 100. And she said, oh, no, this is my last one. (laughs) Now, she said that before, so we'll see. She said, I'm ready to go home, Jeff. And with great peace, she announces her readiness for this great transition. And she is ready. And she is dying, if you will. These are her last days, however many they may be. And she's doing it well. You know, her obsession is not the things of this world. You know what she's into these days? The glory of God, reading her Bible. Her well-worn Bible is grabbed multiple times a day as she turns the gaze of her soul once again to her Savior. His goodness is her joy in these difficult days. And then the other passion of hers is prayer. She tells me every time I talk, I'm praying for you. The reason the Lord still keeps me around is to pray for you and your cousins and your, my great-grandkids. And she faithfully cries out for God's blessing. And I think she's right. We are in need of that faithful woman's prayer. And she selflessly is orienting her life towards others in her final days. Boy, we celebrated her because she lived well and she is closing her life well. May we do the same.
Would you pray with me? Lord, you know when we are going to be called to face that great challenge called death, that trial. And Lord, I pray that when our time comes, you will give us our finest hour. Then in that moment, Lord, we'd follow Stephen's example and that we would be preoccupied with you, looking at your glory and depending on your Holy Spirit, that we'd be focused on praying for others, that we'd be anticipating your welcome, that we'd be thinking about heaven. God, would you please help us in that time to bring a smile to your face, not only that we're returning, but that our best days would be our last days, God. We think of our dear brothers and sisters who Maybe this year is the year. Would you help them? We pray for them right now. Help them finish well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.